0: Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. It's good that we're here, and I invite you to open with me uh, to the book of Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to look again uh, at the passage that Bradley just read. Uh, I'm going to include just the uh, first three verses also. So Exodus 20, verse 1 through 6, we believe, of course, that these words come to us today, written by the prophet, but they come to us, more importantly, by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, they come to us with the same kind of authority as if Jesus himself were teaching. So let's hear together the word of Christ. Exodus 20, verse 1 through 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself to carve image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you are with us last week, we started this series on the Ten Commandments, more appropriately actually titled or called the Ten Words. Uh, and as we said last week, we're actually trying to give you some words to meditate on as we look at these commandments. Last week, we talked about the rule of authority. And we said that God is saying in the first command Um, we're all attaching ourselves to authority. We're all looking for authority in something, something that will give us meaning, something that will give us substance. But what God is saying in the first command is I have all authority. And so if you really want to understand who you are and who you've been made to be, attach yourselves to me, to God. He is where peace is. He is where life is. But this week we come to the second command uh, that we're calling the rule of of covenant. Uh, and of course, kind of the, the gist or the, the center part of the command is that you shall not make any graven image. Now, when I was a kid and I remember learning the 10 commandments and, you know, you come along to like uh, honor your father and mother and you're like, oh gosh, like that's going to be a hard one to keep, you know, or, you know, thou shalt not be a false witness or thou shalt not lie is how they taught it to us when I was a kid. And you're like, oh gosh, well, I'm never going to be able to keep that one, you know, even like, remember the Sabbath days, like, gosh, I gotta, you know, go to church all the time. But this one, I remember being a kid and being like, okay, number two, that's easy. You know, make no graven image. <laughs> I got it. You know, I am never doing that. You know, I am righteous. Um, That was when I was a kid. Now, as I've thought about this you know, more deeply and, and obviously studied this more fully, I actually believe that the second commandment is the commandment that is disobeyed most often. I think it's the one that we fail to obey of all the other 10 commandments. And I think that the failure to obey this commandment is right now uh, the, the problem of our country, the problem of the American church in particular and I'll even go so far as that I think this might be the most important sermon of this whole series. So with that as an introduction, let's look at the rule of covenant. And we're gonna look at three things. First of all, what is the command? I think it's a it's a hard command to understand at first. Secondly, what does it mean to disobey? What does it mean to obey this command? And then lastly, how do you obey it? So, first of all, what is the command? What is the rule of covenant. Uh, in the early, early days of Christ's covenant, before we even like launched as a church, I, I gave this analogy, um, and some of y'all have told me it was helpful, so I'm gonna kind of use it again, but when I graduated from college, my parents got for me a Filson briefcase. We have that. Now, this is actually not a picture of my Filson briefcase, but it, it looked kind of like this, and, and especially toward the end, it was super tattered, and it was falling apart, I, you know, but every day from 2004, until like 2015, I used this briefcase. In fact, that particular briefcase that I'm talking about, I don't know that I've used any other product, you know, more than I've used it. I use it every day for 11 years. And, you know, it was such a well-built briefcase. And, you know, in the end, it got really worn out. But Filson has a lifetime guarantee. And so I sent the briefcase back to, to make repairs on it. Well, it was so worn out that they couldn't repair it And so you know what they did, you know what Filson did? They sent me a brand new briefcase free of charge. It's a quality company. And so, you know, between college graduation and now, because I love this bag so much, I I have the Filson duffel bag, I have the Filson hanging bag. I bought both boys uh, a Filson duffel bag on their birthday, like literally their, their birthday. That was my birthday gift to them because if it's a lifetime guarantee, you might as well, you know, you might as well start soon. And so, I love this company. I have a, a very deep and very special, very meaningful marketplace relationship with Filson. But it is only that. It is a marketplace relationship. It is based on the exchange of something. I give Filson money, they give me quality products. If they quit making quality products, guess what? I would quit giving them money. Or if I quit giving them money, they would quit giving me quality products. It is a marketplace agreement. And so many of our relationships are based on some exchange. But what God is saying to Israel is he is saying to them, I don't want a marketplace relationship with you. I want a covenantal relationship relationship with you this is what he's saying here the, the word in the end for steadfast love it's this beautiful hebrew world beautiful hebrew word chesed and it means covenantal love he's saying i want to show you israel my Hesed love my covenantal love and it is love like you've never seen before it is not based on an exchange it is not based on performance it is based on relationship a covenantal relationship is more like the relationship that you have with your children. It's based on relationship. We don't, we don't base our relationship with our kids on an exchange. It's based on the relationship that we have with them. Father, son, father, daughter, you know, mother, son, mother, daughter. And, and, and because we are in that kind of relationship, there is in that relationship a covenant there is a covenant that is not based on performance. It is based on the relationship that we are in with them. You know, the Dees kids are playing soccer. Now, the Dees family is not known typically for its soccer skill. John Kellis, it's actually fun to watch John Kellis play soccer. It's kind of like a combo between football and soccer. He uses the stiff arm, he lowers the shoulder probably once those things like get you cards in soccer John Kels will probably quit playing soccer and switch over to football but you know if you can just stiff arm and push kids down it's very effective for 4-year-old soccer and so he's doing great Imriena of course much more gentle in her approach much more delicate um but on Imrianna's team there's this there's this one little girl named Ryan and she is a baller I mean she She's got moves, she's got skills. And so before the game, I was like, Imrianna, pass the ball to Ryan. (laughs) Okay? All you need to do when you get the ball, find Ryan and pass it to her. And so, you know, last game, Imrianna had two assists. The the game was three nothing. Imrianna had two assists because she's humble enough and good enough to do what her dad told her to do. She passed it over to Ryan, and sure enough, Ryan, you know, put it in the upper 90. You know I mean? So the kid's amazing. But after the game, because I'm in Rihanna's father, I saw the game. I saw Ryan. She's amazing. You know what I didn't do? I didn't go up to Ryan and said, gosh, Ryan, you're better at soccer than Rihanna. I want to be your dad. No, of course I didn't do that. I went up to Imrianna and I said, I love you, I'm so proud of you. Because why? Imrianna is my daughter. My relationship with her is not based on performance. It's based on relationship. It's based on covenant. You know what she did? She went out there and did an amazing job and I'm so proud of her. But even if she would have done a horrible job, I would have been so proud of her and I would have loved her because she's mine. I am her father. She is my daughter. Our, our relationship is not based on performance. It's based on covenant. And this is the kind of relationship that God desires to have with you. This is the offer of Christianity that you can enter in to a covenant with God. You see here's the deal. God doesn't need anything from you. In, in fact, you can't impress God. He's God. He's sovereign. He's almighty. He has all authority. He speaks and it happens. He is under he is in complete control over all creation. This is who God is. And yet God decided to make a covenant with a man, Abraham. And all of Abraham's offspring. Why? Because God decided to make a covenant with Abraham and with all of Abraham's offspring. Abraham found favor in God's eyes. And so, before this, we would have read in Exodus even when Israel was enslaved and had nothing to offer God and could not impress God, they had no capacity with which to do anything impressive before God. They were under the thumb of the Egyptians, God said to them, my covenant people, I will rescue you. And he is the God who had called them out of slavery. He, had, he is the God that had saved him and called them to be a people of his own. When they had nothing to offer, he said to them, I love you and you are mine. And I don't want a marketplace relationship with you. I've loved you and you had nothing to give to me. Now I want you to love me, not because of what I can give to you. I want you to love me in the same way that I am loving you. I want to have a covenant with you. And and what Christians believe is that this covenant, this covenant that God made with Abraham and to the people of Israel, he is now making with all who call on the name of the Lord. Those of you who were here earlier and, and heard Mari's testimony, God is saying to Mari in Christ, and she believes this, in Christ, I'm making a covenant with you. It's not based on your performance. Christ has already accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished. But in Christ, as I read earlier, we can be the sons and daughters of God. Where where God is your covenantal father. Where we are his covenantal children, not based on performance, but based on status of relationship. He is calling us to be his children in Christ. God is saying, this is what I want. I want a chesed relationship and I want you to love me. But in order to love me, and this is so important, this is why this command is so important. In order to love me, you have to know me. In order to really love me, you have to know who I am. And so I don't want you worshiping a false image of me. I don't want you worshiping something that is not me. I mentioned this last week. But literally, while Moses is on Mount Sinai, Getting this command, getting these ten commandments, getting this law from God, getting this these terms of this covenantal agreement. What are the people of Israel doing beneath Mount Sinai? They are worshiping a false image. They have made an idol. Some of y'all are familiar with this. this is we, we read this in Exodus 32, but it's not it's not twelve chapters later in terms of timeline. It's happening at the same time. But Verse uh, one of Exodus 32, if you just wanna read it quickly with me, it says, when the people saw Moses had delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off your golden rings that are in your ears and the, the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And so all the people took all the gold that was in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. I mean, literally, as this command is being given, this is what they're doing. And he said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before. Now, this is important. And he made a proclamation and said to them, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Where's that? Let's let's go to the next. Uh, we need next slide. Ah, there we go. One more, one more. The Lord. Now, it doesn't. No, go back. It doesn't show up here. Um, but when you see Lord, some of your Bibles, the the word Lord. Look at your Bible real quick. It's going to have this word Lord in all caps. It's like a different font, kind of all caps. Your Bible may not have that. It's not a bad bad Bible if it doesn't. But a lot of versions of Scripture has this Exodus 32, LORD in all caps. You see that all throughout the Old Testament. And whenever you see that in the translations that do this, it is a reference not to just a general Lord, not to just, we're gonna make a, we're gonna have a festival to this God that's out there. No, it, it is specific name. It is, it is the yod Hey. now we can go to the next one. It's the yod Hey vav Hey in Hebrew. The personal name of God. Now, some people will pronounce this word Jehovah. We actually know that is a mispronunciation of this. So, like, you know, no offense to Jehovah's Witness or whatever, but like the whole thing is based on a mispronunciation. Or some people pronounce this Yahweh, um, which we don't know if that's a correct pronunciation or not. We actually don't even know how to say this word because the, the... The the, the rabbi, the the, the priest of the temple, literally, when they were reading aloud the Old Testament scriptures, would not read this word aloud because it was the personal name of God. So we know how to spell it, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, in the Hebrew, but it's this word, this sacred word that is the personal name of God. The the point is in all of that, you can forget all that Jehovah and Yahweh stuff, but the, the point I'm trying to say is this. When, when, when Moses made the calf, or when Aaron, rather, made the calf, sorry. When Aaron made the calf, and he said, we're going to have a feast to the Lord. He was talking about the God of Israel. See what's happening here? What they were doing below the mountain, and this is so important to hear. They were worshiping God in name, but not in truth. They were worshiping the name of God. They were using the name of God, but they were not worshiping God in truth. And this is the great problem of the American church. We worship God in name. Everyone believes in Jesus. Everyone believes in God. But we're not worshiping him in truth. Which brings me to the second point, which is what does it mean to obey or to disobey the rule of the covenant. You see, God wants to have authority in our lives, but he wants to be the one who has authority. He wants you to know him, not an image of him, not a false image of him, not just something that we craft in our mind and say, this is the Lord. We're gonna serve him heartily. This is the rule of the covenant where God is saying, I want you to know me. I want you to love me. I want to be in covenant relationship with you. And then God says, and he says this here, I am a jealous God. I'm a jealous God. Now, this is interesting. What does what this word jealousy mean? Uh, Oprah, when she was in her 20s, she tells this story uh, she was at a church service and the preacher was preaching and he was talking about um, the attributes of God. And he was saying, you know, God is almighty. God is all powerful. And then he said, God is jealous. And Oprah, this is kind of this famous thing. She'll say, she will said, you know, when he said that, I thought, you know, what is God jealous of? What does that mean? How could God be jealous? And, and she says that was kind of the moment where she broke away uh, from Christianity. So what does this mean? Isn't jealousy like a bad word? Well, there's kind of two big definitions of jealousy, and they both apply here. So the first definition, jealousy is being fiercely protective or vigilant of one's rights or possessions. Jealousy is being fiercely protective or vigilant of one's rights or, or possessions. And I want you to hear this. God is fiercely protective of his image. He is fiercely protective of his image. You know, there's a common notion in 21st century American Christianity that God is whoever you want him to be, right? You'll say, who is God? God he's ever who you need him to be. Who do you need God to be today? He's that. And what this command is saying is, no, he's not. God is God. God says to Moses, what does he say to Moses? I am who I am. I am God, you are not, it's God that defines us, not the other way around. He is not whoever you want him to be, and he is fiercely protective and vigilant about his image. And so before we get to the second definition of jealousy, I want to give you a couple of warnings here. We're in an interesting time. We're in an interesting time in church history, we're in an interesting time in world history, where everything, really unlike never before, is fluid, Sex is fluid, gender is fluid, truth is fluid, right? Whatever truth serves you at this moment, let that be your truth. We even say that, your truth. What's your truth? Be who you are, do what you wanna do. And in this kind of fluid age, it's very easy to have anything that is defined, to have anything that is real. Now, look, what I'm not not worried about is the secular world out there right the secular world's going to be the secular world right what i'm worried about what i'm concerned with is us what i'm concerned with is our church we, we, it was with other believers right it's just like god it, 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 he you know egypt was going to worship what egypt was going to wor- worship but god was worried about israel His people, and he did not want Israel worshiping false images. He wanted to make sure that Israel knew who he was, and they were worshiping him as he is, as he had revealed himself to be. God had revealed himself, and he said, listen to my words and do what it says. This is what it is to worship me. This is what it is to obey me. And This is what it meant for them and what it means for you. And so the question is, are you defining God Or are you trusting God for how he defined himself? This is kind of this this old word that we call orthodoxy. God according to God. God according to who God has said himself to be. God according to how he has revealed himself to be. It's what the reformers called sola scriptura. That the scriptures, that God's word is our rule of faith and practice. And God is not defined by an image you know, when the temple in Israel was built. Every other temple in the ancient Near East, every other temple in the ancient world, you know what it would have had in the middle of it? You know what every temple had in the middle of it? An image, a carved image, an image of whatever God it was made to. What did God's temple, what did Israel's temple have in the middle of it? The very middle in the holy place laid within the ark. You know what it was? It was words. It was these words, actually, the commands of God, the, the voice of God speaking. saying, Don't define me by some image. Listen to my word. And throughout church history, people have put forward an image of God, a representation of God that is not God, and he hates it. He hates it. He is vigilant about his own image. And so what I want to do for just a few minutes is to spend some time showing you some calves, if you will, that, that I think we see around us, that I think are real threats to God as he wants to be known. Real calves that I think all of us at some point or another can be, can be drawn toward. Calves that I think are, are very prevalent in the church today. And the first calf is what I will call the moralism calf. This calf works in self righteousness. Christianity is primarily about behavior, right? You are a good Christian if you do these things. I was, you know, when I was a kid, I, I, I was a part of a church that kind of tended toward this, and 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 it was it was a church that was a bit based in fear, right? good Christian doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, doesn't cuss. He goes to church every Sunday, he puts his offering in the offering plate, and he is seen putting it in the plate every week. And again, good behavior, morals, these are good things. These are things that God has designed, but it is not ultimately what God desires from you. God wants you first. He wants you to know and love him, to be in covenant with him, if my children always obeyed me, if they always did what I told them to do, but hated me, what good is that? Where does that get me? It's not what I want from them. I want them to obey me, but I want them to obey me because they love me. Not the other way around. Moralism, it is a great threat God is saying to you, look, I, I have already done everything in Christ for you. Now what I really want is you, and I want you to know me and love me. You know, the moralism calf is defined by fear and shame. But the gospel deals in love and mercy and beauty. Is this your spiritual? Are you drawn to, law, to God because of his beauty and because of his love? The moralism calf is marketplace, right? People that kind of worship the calf of moralism, they this is self-righteousness. It's right, it's, it's I've done this, I'm good. And God owes me big time. It's marketplace. I have obeyed you, Lord. I have done what you've said. But the gospel is covenantal. It says that God's already done everything. The moralistic calf uh, deals... Um, with the outside world, right? You go to a moralistic setting and it's often about what they're doing out there, right? Can you believe what the world is doing? Watch out, right? The moralistic calf primarily looks outside. The gospel primarily looks inside. The gospel says, where's your heart? The, go- the, the moralistic calf looks at the outside world and says, I can't believe how bad they're behaving. I'm sure glad I'm not like them, but the gospel says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Watch out for this calf. It creeps in. I, I pray it never creep. I don't want it to creep into this church. Let's not fashion this calf. The second calf that I want to, you to watch out for is what, what I'm calling the social movement calf. And the, the social movement calf replaces a covenantal relationship with God with good deeds for society. Now again, good behavior, moral behavior is a part of the Christian life. Concern for the needs of others, serving the needs of others and pursuing justice. This is at the very heart of Christ. But again, God is more after our hearts than even our service. The social movement calf sees the problems of the world as structural, but the gospel sees the problems of the world as sinful, there's only one cure for sin. It's Jesus. The social movement calf sees that man's greatest needs are physical, but the gospel says that our greatest need is spiritual. The social movement calf says that the that the solution to our problems is people learning how to work together and get along, but the gospel says no, the, the real solution to our problems is people learning first how to love God. And then and only then can they learn to love, to not just work with one another, but to learn to love one another. We had a great discussion about this at the Spotted Cow um, on Thursday night. We talked about kind of this, this, the idea of social justice, the idea of doing good. And it was a great discussion, and, and it's a hard thing sometimes to think through. And one of the best things that was, was said was uh, by a pastor of a sister church, a guy named Rod Dewberry, who pastors a church called Gospel Hope Church, one of the pastors there, and he said, you know, the problem with kind of the social justice movement is there's like a victim and abuser mentality. It, it has this tendency to divide. Some people are victims. Some people are abusers. Now, the problem with this is like no one wants to be an abuser, right? And so what's kind of happening in our world today is everyone's saying, well, I'm actually a victim too. I'm not an abuser. I'm a victim. I'm a victim. It's interesting. I was, you know, how Google will tell you like how often a word is used. I thought this was interesting. Like, and this is just this ends in 2008. The word "victim" recently is just this high spike, and that's interesting because I th- supposedly like the world is getting better and better, right? Yet more and more and more people are identifying with being victims. You see, a secular pursuit of justice divides victims and abusers, but the gospel says every one of you is an abuser. Every one of you has turned your back on God. Every one of you has gone your own way. And and because of this, every one of us is a victim of a sinful world. It doesn't divide. It actually brings together. People can really approach one another, not in a posture of retribution and guilt and shame, but of forgiveness and mutual love. A third calf that you have to watch out for is the prosperity calf. Now, this calf is easy to follow because it says God wants to bless you in a material and worldly way, right? It's a a good calf. God wants you to be rich. He wants you to live a long life. He wants you to um, have many things. And, And usually the pathway is by being generous to some ministry, by following practical wisdom, and by having enough faith to believe that God will really bless you. And if you are blessed, then that means that you have faith. And if you aren't, that, needs you, that means you need more faith. And again, this is an enticing calf, but it's not biblical. <laughs> we know it's not biblical because this, the whole calf is about you. <laughs> the Bible's not about you. God is primarily not about you. He's about himself. He's about his glory being known. God is saying, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Worship me and nothing else. I am your satisfaction. The prosperity calf says, be satisfied by material things. But the gospel is God's invitation to be satisfied by him in the love that he showed for us on the cross, in the promise of the life that we have in Jesus. The prosperity calf says, follow God and take up for yourself possessions. But the gospel says, Follow God and take up your cross. The prosperity calf kind of flies in the face of actually most Christian experience. It really only works in a wealthy place or in a place that is gaining in wealth. It doesn't speak of sacrifice and loss. I've mentioned him before, but a a great kind of Christian hero of mine is a guy named John Patton. He was a Scottish missionary in the New Hebrides Islands in the 19th century. It was a very difficult place to minister. And if you read anything about Patton, even though God used him in a very mighty way there, his life was marked by sorrow. This is this man's life. Sorrow and hardship and difficulty, right? This is the the biography of John Patton. Sorrow, hardship, difficulty, but deep intimacy with God. There's this passage, and I'll read it. He's literally being chased by cannibals. This is a very kind of savage place to live. And he's trying to get away from these cannibals that literally want to eat him alive, and want to kill him and eat him. And he climbs a tree to get away. Do we have this up here? He says, I climbed into the tree, and I was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharge of muskets, in the yells of savages, yet I sat there among the branches, as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sarhos did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly to my soul than when the moonlight flickered among the chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus alone yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence and to enjoy his consoling fellowship. This is what God wants for you. Not to make you rich materially, but to make you rich spiritually. Not to give you external power, but to give you internal power. Not to give you great physical health, but to give you great spiritual health. The fourth calf, and there's a lot of calves (laughs) that we have to watch out for. But I only have time for four. The fourth calf is what I'm going to call the modern wisdom calf. It's similar to the prosperity calf but it typically doesn't promise as much wealth. And it's less emotional. It's less charismatic. It says, choose Jesus because Jesus is good for you. You want to do well in business? Well, Jesus has some wisdom for that. You want a great marriage? Jesus can help with that. You want good friendships? Jesus can help with that too. It's good psychology with the Bible verse. Now, I want to be very clear. Of course, the Bible is full of practical wisdom. But God's primary goal for you is not to make you wise so that you can be successful pursuing all these other things. God's primary goal for you is covenant, is hesed love, is to know him, is to be in relationship with him. And, and, And if you hear this calf that says, look, Christianity is great. Christianity is good for you. You can do better in business. You can make good decisions. This is not Christianity. God wants your heart. And in fact, I would say this, that is more evidenced when you're suffering. That is more evidenced when you follow God's wisdom, even when it flies in the face of what is popular around you. Even when it flies in the face of the wisdom of the world the bible actually says that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing you know the modern wisdom calf works really well in a culture that is influenced by christianity but it doesn't work in a world that doesn't work in a muslim culture it doesn't work in a secular culture now the modern wisdom calf says look i don't know why everybody wouldn't want to be a christian it just makes sense but but Christianity, the Bible actually says, no, narrow is the way. And hard, difficult is the path that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The modern wisdom calf says, take what you want from Christianity to be a better you. But the gospel says, come and die. The gospel says, I have been crucified with Christ. And therefore, it is no longer I who live, but Jesus who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And again, there's a lot of other calves out there. But the best way to avoid the other calves is this, to know and love the true God, to stay committed to the true God. And this brings me, we're still actually on point number two, and I'm just now to the second definition of jealousy. I know that was long. But the second definition of jealousy is this. It is a painful suspicion of rivalry. A painful suspicion that something else has your attention. You know, the analogy that God gives when talking about his church, you know what God says? You know what God desires? This, this, is, this, this will help you understand the Hesed love of God. The analogy God gives is He wants the church to be His bride, His wife, the one He is in deepest covenant relationship with. And again, you know, don't misunderstand jealousy. There are people out there that are hyper jealous, jealous in an unhealthy way. That's really more, that, the, the more appropriate word there is envy. But, but if you desire faithful marital love with your spouse, if, if that is your jealousy, that is a good jealousy. That is right, it echoes the heart of God. One of the most amazing things that couples say when they get married, I always think I always kind of shudder when I hear this in, in a great way, but it's a big thing to say to somebody else that I am going to cleave unto thee and to thee only as long as we both shall live. I am going to forsake everyone else for you. And this is the kind of love that God wants from us. You know why marriages break up? You know typically why marriages break up? Two things. First is a lack of primacy. It's a lack of primacy. He puts his job before the marriage. (laughs) Hear that? She puts her mother in front of me. Watch out, ladies. He puts his friends. His friends are more important than me. The kids are more important to her. I love the kids, but she never shows me any affection It's always the kids. Her career is more important than our marriage. His family was more important. It's a lack of primacy. I hear it all the time. This is why marriages break up. The second one, of course, is just a lack of faithfulness. The other, he wasn't faithful to her. She wasn't faithful to him. Either way, what is this? This elicits jealousy. The painful suspicion of a rival. And the kind of relationship that God wants with you is a relationship where you haven't made some false image, where you know the true God and where he is first in your life, where you're pursuing him as first in your life. This is the kind of relationship that God desires. Is this the kind of relationship that you have with the Lord? Which brings me to my third point, which is how do we obey this command? How do we obey this command? You know the reason that God didn't want people to carve an image and worship it? Is because in God's great plan, he was going to put his image on full display. In God's great plan, he was going to make his image known in a perfect and full way. This is what we read about in John 1, that the word, the word of God, the command of God, the voice of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the word of God that took on human form. God's image isn't a wooden statue. It's a living son who is fully obedient to God, who is fully reflective of God, even to the point of death for us and so if you want to know God if you really want to enter into covenant relationship with God don't fashion for yourself some false image look to the true image of God look to Jesus look to the one who has made God known look to the image that God has given to us that perfectly reflects his glory now you might be saying hold on Jesus ascended right you know, and we're taking a group. Some of you guys, we're going to Israel next week. And unless the Lord returns, we're, we're gonna not see Jesus on that trip. You might be saying, How do I look to Jesus? What does that mean? Well, Jesus did ascend. He is at his father's right hand, hand but he left behind his spirit. And his spirit has given us his word. And the Spirit has given us His church. So how do you look to Jesus? You look to His Word. You look at the Spirit-empowered Word of God. And, and when you hear these words, even as Mari was saying earlier, when you hear these words, I pray this is happening right now, as you hear the Word of God, it comes to you with a little bit of a Galilean accent. It comes to you with a little bit of something that's different, something that's that, that you don't hear when you just hear normal words. It comes to you with a power that is the voice of Jesus speaking to your heart. And convicting you. And moving you. That's the Spirit-empowered word. But, but Jesus also shows himself to us in his church. When the people of God gather together. When the people of God love one another. Even as Mari was saying earlier, she gathered with these women and saw their lives and saw their faith. Jesus came alive to her. So don't neglect this. Don't forsake his word. Don't forsake his people. Don't forsake meeting together. Don't forsake this this discipline of beholding God together, of pursuing the image of Christ as he is showing himself together to be transformed by him. Because look, here's what God wants to do. This is 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. What is the Holy Spirit doing? He is displaying the image of Christ so that we can behold the glory of Christ and be transformed to the image of Christ. If I was writing, if I was Eugene Peterson and writing the message version of the Bible, I would write it like this. If you look to Jesus, If you see his glory by the power of the Holy Spirit in his word and through his church, then you will be changed and you will be conformed into the image of God, whereby God can increasingly show his glory through you. You see what God wants to do in you? This is why God says, don't carve an image. God's saying to you, you don't carve an image because you know what? God is carving an image. God is carving an image in you. He's saying by showing you Jesus, I'm actually making you into the image of myself. I am showing my glory through you. And in God's great plan, may his image scatter throughout this city and scatter throughout this world so that his power and goodness and glory can be known. And let's pray that God would do that in us. Father, I pray that you would do this in us, that we would be a people not given to images that we carve, that we shape, that we fashion, that are easy to worship, that promise so much but can give so little. Father, I pray that we would look to Christ, the perfect image of the invisible God, and through him and in him, Lord, that we would be conformed. that We would slowly but surely be conformed into his image for the sake of your glory and for the sake of our good Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at six seven eight nine five one. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.